This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Your computer makes thousands of connections every day just like the one it's making now to deliver you your audio content. Why not unlock some little connections of your own? Pick up a box of Cadbury Heroes today, stay at home, and share them with your family or friends. Sometimes it's the little things that bring us together. Beethoven, okay? He looked at a piano and it just made sense to him. He could just play. So what are you saying? You play the piano? No, not a lick. I mean, no. I couldn't paint you a picture. I probably can't hit the ball out of Fenway. I can't play the piano. But you can do my outcome paper in under an hour. Right. Well, I mean, when it came to stuff like that, I could always just play. Son, I've been sitting here for 10 minutes now looking over this rap sheet of yours. I've spoken to the judge, and he's agreed to release you. September 93, assault. Grand theft, auto, February 94. But under two conditions. One of those. First condition is that you meet with me every week. More important. Combinatorial mathematics. Finite math. Sounds like a real hoot. I'm also aware that you've been through several foster homes. The state removed you from three because of serious physical abuse. You know, another. The second condition is that that you see a therapist. All right, I'll do the math, but I'm not going to meet with any fucking therapist. For every instance of the mad genius that one can bring to mind, there's uh, five or ten instances of, of highly creative or even genius people. Da Vinci comes to mind that didn't have a whiff of, of madness about Joey, them. first of all, a big congratulations to you. I mean, you are one of the youngest musicians ever to be nominated for a Grammy Award. That's, that's a huge accomplishment. You're only 12 years old. He has got more going for him than anyone. He is Einstein of our era. Do you know how easy this is for me? Do you have any fucking idea how easy this is? This is a fucking joke. This student will be heading off to university, age 12. Intelligence is really about figuring problems out that have beginning and an end. This is in contrast to creativity, uh, which is about problem making uh, as opposed to problem solving. My boy's wicked smart. Hello and welcome to Science-ish. I'm Rick Edwards, joined as ever by Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. There he is. This week, I am going to be holding your hand, metaphorically. Oh. And it's really for all you narcissists, because we're going to be looking at the science of what makes you a genius. And presumably you count yourself amongst the genius narcissists? I don't think I do, but only because... You're uh, not a I've genius. Been, yeah, I've been, doing, <laughs> I've been doing lots of reading about what makes a genius, and I've got bad news for myself. It ain't me. Narcissist tick. <laughs> Narcissist, not a problem. I've got... And I knew I had that in the bag. Yeah. Yeah, genius. 
Not so much. Turns out I'm just good at exams. Do you know what? Probably didn't need much research for that. If you'd asked me, I could have told you. And how about you? I, I know I'm not a genius. Many people have said it, but I, I always refute it. What, many people have said you're not a genius? <laughs> that is true. Yeah, maybe. And the piece of fiction we're looking at here, uh, to get into it, is... It's a good one, actually. It's really nice. Go on, go on. One of my top 20 films. Goodwill Hunting. Oh, yes, yes. Superb, superb film. Absolutely superb. Um, how many times have you seen it? Probably four or five that I can think of. It can easily stand up to four or five viewings, I would yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Great film. My contention is that uh, prior to the Revolutionary War, the economic modalities, especially in the southern colonies, could most aptly be characterized as agrarian pre-capital. All right, of course that's your Hang on a second. You're a first-year grad student. You just got finished reading some Moxian historian, Pete Garrison, probably. The premise is pretty straightforward. Uh, Matt Damon plays Will Hunting. He's working as a janitor. He hangs out with his mates from kind of the rough Boston neighbourhood. They kind of dick about and get in trouble. But, I mean, if you have a problem like that, I mean, we could just step outside. We could figure it out. No, man, there's no problem. But Matt Damon is also a self-taught genius, and that comes to light when he's, he's cleaning in the university that he works at, and a maths professor has left up a, a problem on the board and he just sort of idly just has a look solves it writes it up um, and then the mass professor gets quite interested in him and tries to kind of mentor him this can't be right it would be very embarrassing did you ever consider I'm pretty sure it's right but did you think of the possibility just take it home and then Will Hunting gets into some trouble with the with the police and to get him out of it, the professor says, come and be taught by me, but also you have to get therapy and he gets therapy from Robin Williams' character. I look at you, I don't see an intelligent, confident man. I see a cocky, scared, shitless kid. But you're a genius, Will. No one denies that. And that's sort of it, really. And, okay. and there's, a, there's a love interest. I mean, to be fair, you've just given us good five minutes on yeah yeah on yeah, yeah. So, i really love this film <laughs> <laughs> and that's also genuinely that's i don't think i've seen it for probably 10 years <laughs> right, well. okay well we've had a full recap so uh so what's the the big question we're going to tackle this week so the big question is is genius innate and who's going to knock it out of the park for us this week a guy called rex young not not related to Carl, as far as we know. Um, but he is an assistant professor of neurosurgery at the University of New Mexico, and his area is positive neuroscience, so the study of what the brain does well. Intelligence has many definitions, but uh, I guess for the layperson, it's being smart, uh, being able to figure things out. Um, there are many scientific definitions of intelligence. Most of them run sentences and paragraphs long. I like to think of it from a brain perspective, and it's the ability to solve problems rapidly and accurately. And if you solve problems too rapidly, you make mistakes, and if you take too much time, uh, you get eaten by other species. So it really is that dynamic interplay between speed and accuracy trade-offs. Here at the Institute, Professor Charles Passarell, Dr. Peaches Bakovitz, and myself have been working on the theory originally postulated by the late Dr. Kramer that the penguin 
is intrinsically more intelligent than the human being. We'd certainly found in terms of intelligence that bigger, better, stronger, um, more white matter, more gray matter, that really was correlated with better intellectual functioning, higher IQs in humans. Uh, even across the animal phylum, you can see that if you line up animals in terms of their brain size or what's called encephalization uh, brain-to-body ratio, you get uh, humans up towards the top and you know mice and shrews and things like that uh, closer to the bottom. If we increase the size of the penguin until it has the same height as the man and then compare the relative brain sizes, we now find that the penguin's brain is still smaller. But, and this is the point, it is larger than it was. They have relatively rare uh, samples of famous people's brains, but uh, the most famous example is Einstein, who died of a aortic aneurysm. Einstein became ill in Princeton. He was taken to the Princeton Hospital, and he died. And he had told people in his family and his lawyer, executive officer, that uh, he wouldn't be averse to having me look at a brain. He knew I was a neuropathologist. Uh, his brain was extracted uh, upon his death and weighed and taken pictures of. And so we do have this prototypical example of the, the brain of a genius. And um, it was rather unremarkable. It was, I think, about 1,200 uh, grams uh, on uh, extraction, which is average. And this is some of the photographs I took of Einstein's microscopic sections of the brain stained by different methods. You see? Yeah. This, uh, this is the coronary artery. This is a brain cell. But uh, he was also in his 70s when he died. So um, for his age, that uh, is not uh, uh, un unusual to have a shrunken brain. But uh, just looking at the brain of Einstein and measuring it uh, would not tell you um, that he was the genius that he was just on the surface. When they said, how do you know he was a genius? I said, not from looking at his brain. It's what his brain did that made him a genius. If only they'd cut his brain out when he was younger. Yeah, Mr. Trick, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Albert, appreciate all the work you do, but we really need to have a look at this brain of yours. <laughs> so, um, obviously, Einstein is one of those people that we say definitely a genius. And, yeah. And we say, you know, we look back and we say somebody like Leonardo da Vinci, there's a guy who was a genius. But do we have a, a way of sort of putting the physiology of the brain together with intelligence? Sort of. It's quite contentious, really. But Dr. Rex has probably the best model out there. And it's called the parietofrontal integration theory. Nice. Previously, when we looked at brain scans, we thought the frontal lobes are what are responsible for for intelligence. And that, that that's where you do, you know, your like your your planning, your organization, lots of higher functions. But uh, Rex and uh, one of his colleagues looked and said, actually, yes. It's absolutely involved, but it's also to do with the connection between the frontal lobes and then the parietal region towards the back. And the parietal region is the bit that does all of the kind of sensory integration, so everything you're getting from your eyes and ears and, right, and so yeah. on. Um, and, and the link between those. And you can kind of see that because if you damage the frontal lobes, you'll lose lots of um, higher functions. But it weirdly doesn't seem to 
do anything to your IQ. So it only only rarely degrades your your IQ. So that immediately implies that something else is 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 going on there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's his model that people are sort of, I think, fairly accepting of. Um, and, and and it's also about, as he said uh, earlier, about having more white matter, more grey matter. So having more uh, white matter and, and grey matter seems to um, increase your intelligence. So white matter is the is like the wiring that connects your the processing regions, the processing nodes of the of the brain, and then the processing nodes themselves are made up of grey matter, which are the the cells that actually do the the thinking, if you like. But you talked you talked about. IQ tests and yeah. you know, measuring intelligence and how good is that measure of how intelligent somebody is how successful they're going to be in life are we any good at um, coming up with really good measures of intelligence the first thing you have to do is try and come up with a decent definition of intelligence and it's, oh, and, which and we can't and that's tricky so one that I think Rex uses is to say it's the the ability to use this kind of deductive reasoning so it's that thing of solving adaptive problems All right. in in your environment but doing it rapidly and accurately. And you can, as exactly as he said, you can see how that would be useful in allowing you to survive. Yeah. Um, because you need to sort of figure stuff out before, yeah, before you get eaten. And and this kind of deductive reasoning is quite sort of rule-based. So you're establishing like cause and effect relationships in the world around you. And that's kind of what IQ tests are, are trying to test. But, the you know, realistically what iq tests do is tell you whether someone is good at iq tests yeah yeah that's that's fundamentally what they do and then that correlates we think with intelligence but equally the the thing about iq tests is they aren't necessarily gonna find you geniuses so so one quite sort of basic definition of a genius is someone so like the the mensa definition having an iq above 140 yeah however it's often been remark that lots of celebrated geniuses wouldn't have had particularly high IQs. So immediately you think, all right, well, we're missing something here. And, the, and So and, we need a better test. Well, yes, or we might just have to accept that we can't come up with a test yeah. because there's too many variables and, and, and factors involved. But they think that the, the thing with a genius is that they are answering a genius level question in an IQ test so one that suggests you have an IQ above 140 does not make you a genius because the thing that geniuses seem to do the sort of common denominator is ask new questions whereas IQ tests obviously are comprised of questions that already have answers and they think that someone like Einstein would effectively have looked at one of these questions and seen lots more questions and lots of answers that are, that are kind of possible. And your sort of brain goes off in, in all sorts of different directions and then gets confused and therefore doesn't do particularly well at the test. Right. See, the sad thing about a guy like you is in 50 years, you're going to start doing some thinking on your own and you're going to come up with the fact that there are two certainties in life. One, don't do that. And two, you dropped 150 grand on a fucking education you could have got for a dollar fifty in late charges at the public library. <laughs> Yeah, but I will have a degree, and you'll be serving my kids fries at a drive-thru on our way to a skiing trip. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, but at least I won't be unoriginal. The suggestion now is that creativity is going to play a really important role, because what geniuses are doing, and they're kind of making these kind of intuitive links between stuff that other people haven't made, and, and almost 
that creating new questions. So you, and, and starting not necessarily by identifying a problem, but just looking at ideas. So you kind of search for ideas and then out of those ideas will emerge questions and then lots of trial and error until you, you end up coming up with a solution to a problem that other people didn't even realise existed. Mm. But what you need for that as well is, is this huge amount of grit and, and, and kind of you need to be super productive. You need to just keep going and going and going. And like, like lots of people have spoken about this thing of how geniuses have loads and loads of really bad ideas. <laughs> so like Edison, he had just over a thousand patents that, that got accepted, a lot of others that didn't get accepted. And of the thousand that did get accepted, I mean, two or three are the ones that, the ones that we talk about. Right. But we don't really mind don't really care about that because yeah. he's done some done some amazing stuff but so it's all sort of trial and error and and you know not being fearful of the fact that this might not be the next big thing right and creativity is a thing that comes up a lot when people talk about genius now and it's quite a tricky thing because defining what creativity is scientifically is quite hard um but we we put it to professor jung the definition of creativity is the production of something novel and useful. And if you remember my definition of uh, intelligence, which was rapid and accurate problem solving, novel and useful problem solving is quite different uh, from creativity. It's a slower process. Uh, it is uh, looking for uh, problems that are relatively rare, and this is where abductive reasoning comes comes to bear, where you are often generating hypotheses and um, trying to literally look outside the box or solve problems outside of a uh, constrained uh, set. Again, that tension between novelty on the one hand and utility on the other, it creates a dynamic tension between different uh, neural architectures. So when you're doing novelty generation, you want to inhibit the error checker. You want to take your foot off the brake, if you will. So when you're generating novelty, uh, you don't want to check your ideas. So you uh, generally are down-regulating frontal lobe structures that are in service of inhibiting uh, um, prepotent, what we call responses or, or regular responses. So you want to make things weird and strange and crazy, uh, if you will. So sometimes in dream states or meditative states or when you're taking a shower or a long run or something like that, these strange ideas might come to you because the ideas uh, are more likely to run e into each other in neural networks when the inhibitory controls are downregulated uh, temporarily or transiently. Um, you're going to need those later when you try to implement that creative idea. If you're a painter or a writer or a scientist, um, when you try to figure out if that idea is worth pursuing and then pursue it out in the world, you're going to bring cognitive control networks back online. So being a creative genius is sort of like the opposite of being, you know, operating that intelligence. Um, I think, I don't know about the opposite. It's like, uh, it's like Professor Rex says, there's a, there's a tension between it. It's a different type of brain operation. So it's slower and you're looking for novelty and usefulness 
versus, you know, intelligent thinking where you're trying to do something quickly and accurate. It's almost like this has to happen before you can do the kind of the rule-based deductive reasoning. So abductive reasoning, yeah, comes before deductive reasoning, where you're trying to figure out new stuff. So you sort of lay out the landscape of yeah, possibilities. Like you kind of, like you're doing best guesses yeah. about something. So you're kind of looking at a situation that you can't quite figure out and being like, well, it might be this, or it might be this, or it might be this, or it might be this. And then once you've established what it is, then you would be using deductive reasoning because you're like, oh yeah, I know how this works now. And now I can, so I can figure right. whatever the problem is out. What's interesting is that there's really interesting studies that have been done where, so your frontal lobe is, is, is quite dominant and that's where that kind of, you know, the error checker is. If you inhibit that, so for example, um, if someone has a kind of frontotemporal dementia, you can see often that they will, having never shown any sort of interest in, in art or painting or whatever, these dementia patients start just having this uncontrollable urge to paint and create. So, you know, like guys who've, got this dementia you know just painting canvases having never painted before in their lives or doing pottery having never done it like sort of quite obvious expressions of creativity that have been totally absent previously but removing this kind of check on creativity they start to express themselves i think it's probably slightly over egged the kind of conclusions about that because Um, well like the idea of sort of brain damage madness equals creativity kind of thing well part partly that but partly i think it's just a bit more complex than if you damage the front bit of your brain it's going to unleash creativity i'll Um, cross that off my things to do at the weekend then yeah (laughs) yeah and that sort of artistic creativity is just one very narrow bit of creativity and so you'd need to do and i don't think these have been done you'd need to do tests on those kind of patients with all of the different types of creativity to see what's happening there and this might just be a special case still it's pretty amazing yeah i like the idea of just unleashing you know pottery (laughs) painting i I mean it's not something i ever do obviously so if i find myself doing any pottery or painting i'm going to question the integrity of my brain it it sounds like a really alien thing like that suddenly your your frontal lobes aren't functioning properly but it kind of happens every time you you dream that's sort of why your why your dreams are a bit mad and and stuff happens that is not quite real world and 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 like you're drawing on lots of things you think about dreams are very creative expressions and it's essentially your frontal lobe is kind of shut down to some extent yeah and lets the uh, and lets the rest of the brain run riot and there are good examples of people waking up aren't they, from sleep with, you know, new creative ideas? Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a great story about um, Keith Richards going to sleep and he had a guitar and a tape recorder by his bed and then when he woke up, he saw that the tape was at the end and he um, and he was like, well, I, I don't know why that is, but he rewound the tape, played it and sort of recorded in his, in his sleep, effectively, was the first, uh, was the verse from I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Nice. And he'd just done that in his sleep. All right, so we, we know a fair bit about what's happening with the brain, but basically what I want to know is, is genius set from birth? Can I develop it? Tell me I can develop it. You can't. So let me introduce you now to, to, to Paula and Peter Imarfidon, is their name. 
They've just passed the University of Cambridge Advanced <laughs> Maths A-Level, and you've guessed it, they're just eight years old. And they're here now with Dad Chris and Sister Samantha, who's not half bad at maths herself, I have to say. When people talk about any behavioral characteristic being innate or nature or nurture, well, it's always a bit of both. Uh, it's, it's a false dichotomy. It's always a bit of both. And with genius, the best estimate is that it's a 50-50 split, about 50% of the capacity for high intelligence, high creativity, high ability in just about anything comes from your parents, which is genetic, and the other 50% uh, also comes from your parents through their environmental influence on you uh, and your friends and family and other environmental influences. How do you explain this? Are you and your wife good at math? Oh, no, I'm not a mathematician. Not as my wife, but the, the, the big sisters uh, like playing the number game, so they want to outdo each other. So anything that is competitive then becomes something that drives up. So this goes uh, right through all your children? Yes. Intelligence appears to be uh, under very limited environmental constraints. Uh, the studies have been done and now meta-analyses have been done that demonstrate that uh, certainly education and uh, knowledge acquisition is extremely important to the development and manifestation of your intellectual capacity. Today, the new international reading, math, and science scores were released, and Chinese students left American teens in the dust in all three categories. There's a lot of ways that you can diminish intelligence, but there are a few ways that you can enhance intelligence, if any. I'm a bit more hopeful for creativity and thus the expression of genius if such a thing exists. In that creative capacity, that generation of novelty, for example, and the cultivation of openness that allows people to determine that they have an aptitude or ability in a certain area and are able to pursue that could be instilled or in, in, engendered in an educational setting. On average, Chinese students attend 41 more days of school every year. And with some attending classes on the weekends, it amounts to 30% more hours of instruction every year, too. So genetics is playing a big role here. There's no getting away from it. No, there isn't. And it's pretty contentious because it's not what people really want to hear. But when you look at twin studies, there's a guy, Professor Robert Plowman, who runs the Twins Early Development Study, TED. Mm -hmm. Oh, nice. Um, it's twins born in England and Wales in the mid-90s, I think. And obviously, twins are absolutely ideal for doing these kind of studies yeah. because you can really start to unpick the genetic component, particularly with identical twins because I mean, they've got 100% shared DNA. They're almost um, as good as babies on an island, aren't they? Nothing is as good as babies on an island. <laughs> you and I both know that. <laughs> but it turns out that IQ is very heritable. So clever parents are more likely to have clever kids. And, and like Professor Rex was saying... You, there's not much you can do to increase the IQ or you know it slash intelligence of your child. It can diminish, but unlikely to increase. And what's really fascinating is that that heritability. So it was, if it starts at around fifty percent, will actually increase as you get older. I and mean, at first um, hearing, you're like, "What? That makes no sense." But I think it's because. You're, you sort of follow the path that your genotype is setting out for you. So if you if you are 
good at certain things, you will pursue those things and you'll start to reinforce it. So you become more and more aligned with your genotype. Uh, okay, so it becomes more manifest the older you get, effectively, yeah. because those are the things that you've really honed nicely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it could end up being sort of 80% heritable. What exactly do you mean by heritability? Yeah, so it's slightly um, complicated and probably not what people immediately think it means. You say, what's the proportion of the variation in a given trait? So what's the proportion in the variation of intelligence within a group, so within a population, that can't be explained by environment or or random events? So it's not about the individual. So, you know, even though um, someone might be genetically predisposed to being fat, let's say. Yeah. So and, and actually, I think being overweight is quite heritable. Yeah. So um, if you look at, again, twins, and you look at one who has never lived with their parents, they're still more likely to be fat if the parents were fat, yeah. um, irrespective of what their adoptive parents are like. In 1905, there were hundreds of professors renowned for their study of the universe, but it was a, it was a 26-year-old Swiss patent clerk doing physics in his spare time who changed the world. Can you imagine if Einstein would have given that up just to get drunk with his buddies in Vienna every night? We all would have lost something. Pretty dramatic, Jerry. No, it isn't, Sean. This boy has that gift. He just hasn't got the direction, but we can give that to him. So you can't do much about your genetics. Is there any good news on the nurture side of things? Yes. Yeah, there is, actually. So there's this um, famous 1995 study which found that wealthy children will hear 30 million more words than poor children by the time that they're three. So not as in the vocab, but just there will be 30 million more words spoken at them or they'll hear. Yeah. So there'll be far more conversation going on. uh, Yes, and, and what that initially made people think is you just need to just be talking at them, like watching the TV, whatever it is, just like get get that going. So they're hearing loads of words, like dumping words on them. But recent research says that it's not really the amount of words because you can now, you can kind of strip away the effect of socioeconomic privilege and that accounts for all of the differences that they were seeing. Okay. Um, not, not the words. But what is important is these things called conversational turns. So effectively back and forth. And that back and forth can be, you know, even pre-speech for the child. So if the child is gurgling and you saying, oh, what was that you said? And then the child will gurgle again. And so just like practicing that back and forth and having conversations it, it is the most important thing. And the more conversational turns that a child is exposed to and, and involved with, the better they'll do on, on, on kind of standard tests, sort of literacy tests and wow. so on. Which is sort of amazing. That's, that's surprising, isn't it? Yeah. Because I can't think why that is. Do you want me to say why? Yeah, go on. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> There's another great um, experiment where infants were studied when they were trying to learn Mandarin. They did it in three different ways. So some had a teacher, others had the same teacher but on a screen, and then the third ones just had a, an audio recording the ones with the the human teacher live in front of them learnt mandarin the other two couldn't and then you could 
sort of go a bit further with that to try and work out what's going on and see that if the video was then live so that you could you could have back and forth mm. so that the the person in the video responds just like a live person then then the kids again can learn but if it's just a pre-recorded video they they learn nothing so they're kind of like that back and forth and the social aspects yeah um, are really, really important for cognitive development. So we need AI teachers, not just sort of virtual teachers on a, a YouTube video. Yes, exactly. Okay. Look, you're my best friend, so don't take this the wrong way. In 20 years, if you're still living here, coming over my house to watch the Patriots game, still working construction, I'll fucking kill you. That's not a threat. What? That's a fact. I'll fucking kill you. What the fuck are you talking about? Look, you're sitting on a winning lottery ticket. You're too much of a pussy to cash it in. And that's bullshit. Because I'd do fucking anything to have what you got. So would any of these fucking guys. All right, so let's go back and run down the question. Is genius innate? I think, and this ties very neatly in with goodwill hunting, you will have people who have the... Um, genetic characteristics that are required to be a genius but they won't have the opportunity to express that genius right and then so they they could still be a genius but you'd never know about it which and that's that sucks like yeah you'd, you'd rather not be a genius full stop wouldn't you do you think the, they know they have the potential to be a genius well they're really clever they probably know most stuff <laughs> that's got to hurt hasn't it yeah well i think you need lots of things to go right for you so you need the right genetics you probably don't need to be scoring massively highly on an iq test you need to have that sort of determination to just keep on going you need to be really productive um there's probably going to be a genetic component of that as well you need to be in the right kind of environment where you can express your genius and you need creativity so there's quite a lot of things that need to all come together. Yeah, it has to be that the stars align and, yeah. then, and then you get a genius. But I'm sure there's going to be an awful lot of people who have some of the ingredients to be a genius but, but will never be expressed, never be realised. Sad for them. Yeah. I feel glad I'm not a genius. Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producers were Cormac McAuliffe and L. Scott. Sound design by Ivor Slayer-Manley. Special thanks to Professor Rex Young. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate and review us on whatever app or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter at science underscore ish. I've met a lot of people who claim to be geniuses, just undiscovered, unacknowledged. Really? Yeah, yeah. Like who? People write to me all the time with their theories of the universe, and oh, saying, yeah. "Just read this; it solves everything you you talk about in you know such and such." Mm. And uh, I never ever read them. Just public matter of public information. I never ever read them. You might be missing some absolute gold. I know. I think that every single time. Well, why don't you read them? Because I haven't got time. Yes, you have. (laughs) Or inclination. (laughs) More to the point. Inclination is is the key thing. Uh, That's not my job.
A friend is someone that can still help you even when they can't be there in person. Like with the friendly new Bank of Ireland third level current account. With it, you get a debit card that's biosourced and actually made from 82% corn. How cool is that? And you can also partner it up with your phone to use Apple Pay to buy things, even if you don't have your card on you. You can apply for your friendly new third level current account in just six minutes at bankofireland.com forward slash student. Terms and conditions apply. Bank of Ireland is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.